Good morning. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Uh, Kicking off the second half of the show, I want to introduce my guest. Um, He's a professor here at UC Irvine. He's He's doing so many incredible things here. He's Associate Dean for Research and International Programs, Director of the Blum Center for Poverty Alleviation, uh, you can find out more about that at blumcenter.uci.edu. Director of the Center for Unconventional Security Affairs and Professor of Urban Planning and Public Policy and Political Science. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Richard Matthew to this week's show. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for calling in. You bet. I'm reading your, your bio, well, not even your bio, your titles. You've been here a while, haven't you? 20 you- years. 20 years. Oh, my gosh. How you managed to juggle all these different roles, Dr. Matthew. Unbelievable. <laughs> t- t- walk us through, when you first got here, what your role was. Well, when I first got here, I was, um, I was you know, an assistant professor, starting, at, sort of starting off my career. Um, at that time, my, I'd moved from the East Coast, and my focus was really on, you know, um, the process of peace building and modifying the process of, the processes of peace building, and I was very much involved with, with the United Nations at that time. So I spent a lot of my first ten or fifteen years here traveling, mainly in Africa. Now, how did you end up deciding on Africa? Well, I was you know I was working for um, on UN peace building missions, and so a lot of them are in Africa, not all of them, but a lot of them. And so I had a series of opportunities to traveled to, to work in Congo and Rwanda and Sierra Leone. But prior to that, I had worked in Pakistan and Nepal. Your TED Talk was really powerful. I really enjoyed that, by the way. Oh, thank you. Could you share with the listeners um, how you chose that topic, how you structured that talk? So I have to say, which TED Talk are you referring to? Because I have quite a few. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. Um, this was the TEDx Orange Coast one, talking oh, yeah, about okay. natural yep. resources for peace building. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was, basically, I had been um, involved in this effort to... So the idea of peace building emerged at the end of the Cold War. And the hope was that without the Cold War rivalry, we could work, you know, collaboratively to assist countries coming out of war. And in the early days, in the, in the 1990s, there was a lot of focus on trying to make countries um, that were in war sort of look like Sweden or Canada. And there was a lot of focus on elections and markets and, and you know, uh, governments and, and, and so on that looked a lot like Sweden and, and Canada. Um, and I was part of a pretty small group that said we also need to look at, you know, the major issue that is emerging now, which is climate change and biodiversity loss. We have to look at the environmental dimensions of, of conflict and of building peace. And okay. so I was able to lead um, an effort with a, a group of people in, in the United Nations to prepare a report on why this was important. And then I was able to give it to, to, do, to present it at the General Assembly in New York. Um, the idea was accepted, and I was invited to, to work on a series of, of humanitarian missions. And so I went and, and spent quite a lot of time in different countries trying to implement you know, an environmental dimension to peace-building operations. Okay. And so people heard about that. It led to a variety of things, including offers by the Moth and, and TEDx and so on, to talk about those experiences. Incredible. Have you always 
led this very purposeful, meaningful life? Have I always led it? Yeah. I mean, probably not when I was 15 or 16. Well, I think that, who does? Um, when, I was, <laughs> when I was a teenager, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I was from a very rural part of Canada. Okay. Um, my family wanted me to be a medical doctor or a lawyer, mm-hmm. and I really thought those were only the, maybe the only two options for people. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to university, so I really didn't have a good sense of what was out there. Um, but very quickly, as soon as I went to university, I started to see that there were all sorts of interesting things happening. And for me, the you know both humanitarian operations and environmental issues became increasingly sort of um, a focal point mm-hmm. as, as, a, as a college student then when I did my PhD and so on. So it made sense for me to to think about those things. And I guess, yeah, I, I had a, a real clarity of purpose very early in my career. I had a clear sense of the sorts of things I wanted to do. That's I just great. wasn't sure how to go about doing them. Sure. Well, I always say life is nonlinear. You know, you explore different opportunities, you meet different people. Um, I've been very focused on uh, something close to my heart, which is uh, helping people that are experiencing homelessness in the, during mm-hmm. the pandemic. And I feel like especially for younger people, for college students, um, they, they've been hit so hard. That's an understatement by the pandemic. So going and doing something meaningful and purposeful can be very uplifting. Absolutely. I mean, I think it, I don't know anybody who has ever done any type of service work who has regretted it. Yes. Um, and I, I think that, you know, people who, who aren't engaged in using whatever advantages and privilege they have mm-hmm. to assist people who are in conditions of disadvantage, you know, often often structural conditions, but they might be sort of situational, um, are missing a tremendous opportunity to, to do something very human and yes. very rewarding. Yes. Tell me about the Blum Center for Poverty Alleviation. Sure. I mean, very, I, I, you know, Richard Blum, who is a UC regent and a philanthropist and the, and, the, and the husband of Senator Dianne Feinstein, started the Blum Center at Berkeley about, 15 years ago, um, to study, to provide a very, you know, a, a center dedicated to studying poverty, so that the idea was that Berkeley students would, would have the opportunity to really study poverty. And this makes sense. California has the highest rate of poverty in the country. Yeah. It has for a long time. Mm-hmm. It has the first or second highest rate of homelessness in the country. And it has the largest number of people who are close to poverty in the country. I didn't know that. So there's a lot of, you know, Probably around four to five out of every ten Californians are struggling financially every single day of their lives. Mm. So it made sense to have this dedicated focus. And, and about ten years ago, he started to make small investments in other universities to set something up. And so, you know, he every every UC campus was was able to apply for these funds and get a small startup package. And UC Irvine did about six, six years ago, and I was asked, after the proposal was made, I was asked to direct the, the initiative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have a lot of freedom. Our, our center looks very different from, from the other centers. We sort of have two areas of focus, one on what I'll call sort of social inequality and cohesion, and we have a number of programs. We have a human trafficking program, for example, and we have a program on the science of compassion. And the other half focuses on climate change and other environmental issues, and we have a series of programs there, one on 
planetary health, one on flood modeling for highly vulnerable communities, one on environment building in, in extremely con- in high conflict areas. Now tell me about, I was going to say, is this in the School of Social Ecology? It is. It's a okay. sort of, the, the, the Blum Center is a partnership between the Division of Undergraduate Education and the School of Social Ecology. Okay. Are you finding uh, students are really gravitating towards these programs? Thousands of students. We have we have we have had th- last last year during the um, uh, you know the height of COVID when everything was online, we had over three hundred students interning in the center. Wow. Um, and and Great. we typically uh, the courses that they're not formally Blum Center courses, but mm-hmm. courses developed through the Blum Center uh, grants and by Blum Center faculty. We typically teach about a thousand students a year, and then we have a whole lot of programs. One called Small Change, Better World, where we provide grants to students who have an idea that they can do, you know, make their neighborhood or their, you know, or some other part of the world better in a very concrete, tangible way. They, we give them funds so they can design and implement and evaluate their vision. And these are small projects, but they're incredible what students have done. Um, we have another project that sends students out on internships around the world in in Africa and Asia and uh, and Mexico and and uh, Paraguay. Okay. So yeah, we touch a lot of students' lives, undergraduate students. That's fantastic. Um, let me jump back. So, what kind of things are they doing as far as projects? Um, let's see. We have had students purchase equipment for a mobile medical van in Tijuana, which provides um, assistance to you know, extremely low-resource communities in Tijuana, and there are quite a few of them. Okay. We've had people put solar panels on a rural hospital in Uganda that served a huge number of people but did not have a reliable supply of energy and so often had to close. We've had people um, uh, work with, with homeless communities here in, in Southern California, providing a variety of, of, of uh, things from, you know, hygiene uh, materials to, to uh, you know, um, emergency food supplies and so on. Sure. So a wide range of things locally and abroad where people have said, I can, I can do something that will make a difference in, in some people's lives. We're not looking for projects that only succeed if they can be sustained forever, yes. but projects that provide immediate value, you know, that a student could realistically design and implement herself or himself. I always talk about to students about how there's a tremendous power to being thoughtful and kind to other people, especially right now. And it could be your neighbor that you don't even know, but just going over and saying, can I get you anything, or introducing yourself and making some kind of connection because we're so disconnected. Do you have any suggestions for students that are listening to this, thinking, what could I do right now on a local level because I can't travel? I mean, there's there's so many things that are possible locally. One of the things, you know, that, that is sadly true about Orange County um, is that we have tremendously high levels of inequality here, and we have a large number of people who are facing acute need. Um, so we have a, not a, enormous, but we have a significant homeless population. We have a very significant population of trafficked people. Um, yeah. We have a significant population of people living in, extremely crowded conditions, um, kids who, who, whose parents um, are, are not available for a variety of reasons, usually economic reasons, to give them the mentoring they might need to flourish in school. 
And so there's all sorts of things people can do, mentoring, you know, mm-hmm. um, raising uh, resources for people. And, and as you say, just, just interacting with people so yes. that they know. I, I spent some time with David Carter, who's, who you probably know, he's a judge associated with homelessness in Orange County. Yes. And he goes around um, the homeless, homelessness encampments just talking to people. And that experience is, is not just um, rewarding for the people who does it because you're learning about the world. It's also rewarding for the people who, who um, you're focused on because they often feel completely disconnected, marginalized, yes. voiceless. And so to know that somebody is interested in hearing their story and sharing their story and doing, you know, it's basically the experience I had working in refugee camps for a lot of my life is you're, is you're dealing with people who, who really have no voice and they don't, they have tons of ingenuity. They're, 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 they're thoughtful and, and, you know, intelligent people, but yes. they lack the ability to, to you know, um, influence political outcomes or to mobilize the economic assets that they need to do something. Sure. Uh, let me just jump in. If you are just tuning in, we are talking to Dr. Richard Matthew, who's an um, associate dean for research and international programs right here at UC Irvine, and also director of the Blum Center for Poverty, Poverty Alleviation. Uh, and you have a whole bunch of other titles. Um, I'm going to give people my show blog because I have your bio on there. It's getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. Um, I want to quickly share something with you. So on a different show I was doing, I interviewed Willie uh, Baronet from SMU, and um, Dr. Matthew, he's really fascinating. He uh, went around and bought signs since the 1990s from homel- people that are experiencing homelessness, and he collects these signs, so he'll give them like $10 for a sign, but he'll stop and talk to them and get to know them and, you know, if there's something he can do for them. It's, it's been an unbelievable project for him. Wow. I know. Oh, and there was That's a documentary great. done, too. There are lots of people doing amazing things. I think that there there aren't enough though um, who are out there doing really the, the sort of work that needs to be done, both on on issues of inequality and poverty and on issues of sort of you know climate uh, adaptation and, and and protecting us from nature loss. Yes. there's lots of opportunity for people to get involved. I agree. I um, I'll briefly tell you that I I started um, donating food to people who are experiencing homelessness by and I. It was such an education for me. This was last year, and I discovered um, different organizations. So if people wanted to get involved, Tustin Family and Youth Center, Mary's Kitchen, Colette's Children's Home, um, OC Rescue Mission, et cetera, et cetera, Project Hope Alliance. So there are many, many things, as you said, where people can get involved, um, and it's you know beneficial for both parties. Absolutely. And, you know, we do research also on, um, on compassion. And we know that people who, who don't just, you know, hear about things and, and, and allow them to, to remain abstract and distant, but who actually say, what am I going to do with my life in relationship to the disadvantage or suffering of other people? What am I going to do about that? These people tend to be happier with their lives. They tend to be healthier. They tend to be more successful in other domains of their lives. So, so there seems to be a very strong relationship between the decision to do things for people who are in, in conditions of disadvantage and all the other things in your life that you might want to flourish in. Yes. 
I feel like once you start being compassionate and being open and aware of the needs of other people and moving outside of your own mindset, it spills over into other aspects of your life. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that's exactly what happens. And people often find it so rewarding. They, you know, they increase their engagement with their communities, whether it's it's very local or, or uh, you know, whether they're working far far from our borders. Um, they increase their involvement, but they also often have more clarity about what they want to be doing, what rewards them, how they want to live, what sort of legacy would they want to leave, what they want to be able to tell to their children or grandchildren or whatever mm-hmm. about the lives they've led. Yes. And almost nobody, I think, wants to be able to say to their kids or their grandchildren or their friends, you know, I had a life where I watched tons of television and played tons of, of video games and ate lots of fast food. And that, those are the, that's mainly what I remember about my life. So, so people, you know, want to build biographies that are meaningful. Yes. And one way we can do that is by tackling the really complicated challenges that are, that are you know, facing humankind today. Yes. And they are complicated. Extremely. You know, and I, I also bring up, like, let's say Gen Z, for example, they might think they want to go in one direction and get that, you know, big title and that job and that, amazing company, but they've had to pivot because of what's gone on with the pandemic. So many have lost opportunities, internships and jobs. So there's never been a better time to open up your mind to other aspects of how your life can unfold. Absolutely. And, you know, we have, um, we have some, some researchers who do some fascinating work on things like the relationship between money and happiness. Mm. And, as people earn more money, their understanding of what makes them happy does change. So a billionaire's idea of happiness may not be the same as someone, you know, um, uh, who isn't part of the 1%. That's true. But are they actually happier in any meaningful way? Probably not. They're just happy in a slightly different way. Yes. So, so you know, more money doesn't make you more happy. It might make you happy differently. You may start to identify yourself more in terms of the size of the home you, you have or, or the type of car you're driving. But that isn't necessarily a huge advantage over the person who's happy because they have mastered classical piano or they have, you know, produced a documentary that they care about or they have worked for an organization that they really believe is doing good. So there's lots of different ways to have a happy, meaningful life. And it isn't that, that you know, um, uh, and so wealth is, 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 has some benefits. There's no doubt about it. And, and financial success in our country in particular is, you know, a, a metric that everybody is familiar with. But we also have to recognize there are a whole lot of ways that people typically don't explore very effectively that also lead to tremendously meaningful and rich lives. Yes. I'm right in the midst of reading a book called The Book of Joy. Uh-huh. And are you familiar with it, with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu? Um, yeah, yes, I Oh, my gosh. It's so interesting. And I, I started thinking about how, as we get older, our definition of happiness and joy changes so much. Um, and I feel like at this point in my life, like, I look for things that are more meaningful, and I'm not so interested in the title and, you know, other things. Um, and you, you just happened to mention something about... Uh, I think you said something about music, and I, I think there's such tremendous power in the flow state. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit about that. 
Well, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the strongest impulses in, uh, of being human is the creation of, of art. And music is one of those things which is accessible to everybody. It does require dedication. It does require to, to you know, excellence is, is the output of an awful lot of hard work. But it's tremendous, tremendously unifying. In other words, you could take, you know, people from all sorts of different cultures, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic positions, and you could put them together in a choir which would be able to produce great art. So, so things like music are able to transcend a lot of differences while allowing us to produce something clearly beautiful, meaningful, impactful on other people. There's a reason marginalized and oppressed people have produced some of the great music of, of our history yes. and of many other cultures. Yes. It's because, you know, they have leaned on it, they have turned to it as a form of expression and cohesion and a type of legacy that is available to them. Um, right. So, I, you know, I strongly believe in, in, in the importance of, and it's, it's a sad thing that our, edu- uh, and STEM is very important, there's no doubt about it, but it's sad that our our educational systems on the whole have allowed students to move through K-12 and college without deep engagement with art or philosophy, because it's really, really hard to grapple with the sort of problems we have today if you're only immersed in science. Yes. You know, we also need that philosophical training that, that, that helps us understand right and wrong and ethics, and that artistic training that helps us connect and feel cohesion, and communicate, and express. Um, those are all parts of being human. So yeah. while I love a good course in science, um, I can tell you, my, you know, two of my three kids are one studying opera in college and the other studying classical piano performance. Oh, I think those are, 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 are great majors. Lots of people say, you know, the jobs are in computer science and engineering, and that's true. Um, but excellence is gets, you, get, you know, comes with all sorts of rewards yes. however you achieve it. And, okay, the jobs might be in those areas, but perhaps, um, you know, they will create their own opportunities. They will become entrepreneurs. You know, if you're, if you're passionate about something, you will, you will figure it out, I believe. Um, I will say now has, is such an important time to submerse yourself in some form of art, music, because we need this. I, I feel like our souls, our, our mental, emotional health is it needs art more than ever. I think it does. And I think that, you know, there's, there's a thir- uh, sort of a very strong therapeutic value to art. It's a tremendous way to organize complex thinking and find a way to express yourself, whether, whether you're, you know, writing a graphic novel or, or molding something out of clay or just playing, you know, something on, on the piano. It's a tremendous way to sort of... But, it, but it's also... It's also a way of interacting with other people and communicating with other people. Yes. And I think that when you produce art yourself, you are likely to also be interested in the artworks of other people. Mm-hmm. That's how you know, great artists tend to spend an awful lot of time listening or looking at other art forms. Um, they, they, they are inspired by other creative minds. Yes. And I believe that that, that type of creativity lends itself to things like solving social problems. You know, our brains have to be developed, and, they get, and, and, and we develop them uh, depending on what we do. And if you're watching TV, the neurological development is not the same as if you're learning to play piano. It's a different type of neurological development. 
And there's lots of science that says the training to learn piano outfits you to take on all sorts of other challenges. Mm -hmm. The the, the neurological development that comes from watching TV really has very, very limited value in anything else you might want to do with your life. Yes. So there are huge neurological benefits as well as, you know, personal satisfaction, you know, uh, um, uh, peer connection, and and the ability to, to consult. The other thing I think about art is that when we learn about art, we discover that a lot of, of things, you know, people are critical of, of aspects of Western culture, and they should be. But when we dive down into the, the products of Western culture, whether they're science or artistic, we discover that they are all closely inter, uh, sort of closely dependent on interactions with many other cultures. We would not have Western science and the famous Western scientists without the scientific, uh, scientific activity of, 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 you know, the Arab world or the Asian world mm-hmm. or, you know, the indigenous communities of North America. They were all, ma- we don't recognize them. We don't, give, we don't give them the attribution they should have. Yes. But, but they were part of the scientific enterprise. And it's the same with art. Many of the great artists that we know, we think of in the Renaissance or classical music, were closely monitoring, you know, artistic expression and artistic ex- achievement in China or Japan mm-hmm. or, you know, in other parts of the world. So one of, the, one of the things about art, like science, is that it's a very inclusive activity. Yes. And, and when you get into it, you start to realize the, the ways in which humans are connected and the ways they have been connected historically. And I think that's a good, a good alternative to the sort of, you know, us versus them mentality that is polarizing our country right now. Absolutely. Well, you know what? This past 30 minutes has flown by, but I would love to have you back on. Anytime. You, you let me know when it's convenient, and I'm always happy to talk about our work. This is wonderful. Um, if people want to find out more about you, I put all your information on the show blog, getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. But uh, do you have a specific website? Because you have so many. I mean, I think the best thing is to look at Blum Center at UCI. Okay. Blumcenter.uci.edu. Um, yeah, that's okay. it. Blumcenter.uci.edu. That's it. Okay. Fantastic. Dr. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been wonderful. My pleasure, Jen. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Again, if you missed any part of this, all the information about Dr. Matthew is on the show blog, and I will have the podcast on there in just a little bit, probably within the hour, I'm hoping. Um, Hope your New Year's off to a great start. And up next, Sheldon Abbott with Cure for the Blues. Have a great Monday, everybody.